Just like the kind of school boy. I used to, but a lot about a bunch of bloody kids. Some of them public school, like, you know. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. This is going to be an unusual episode in several ways, but the main one is the relative lack of personal updates and housekeeping. If you want to know what I've been up to this past month, now would be a great time to sign up to my monthly newsletter, released on or around the first midweek day of the month. The deets for this are in the show notes. Although be aware that at the time of writing this pod, I hadn't got around to writing my newsletter. It, like everything else I'm involved with, has a flexible schedule. The reason for the lack of housekeeping is that I wasn't sure how long this episode would get in length, so to avoid it being, you know, overly long, I figured I'd dedicate the whole episode to the subject in hand. And what a subject. Now, I'm aware I don't talk about my background or my family much, save for the occasional regular subtweet to my mother. I'd best be on my most elegant behaviour this episode, though, because I think she might actually end up listening in. Indeed, as you'll already have heard, she appears on it. Although, for the most part, only in passing. But anyway, see, a couple of years after I was born, my mother remarried. And Gary, the chap that she married, had an interesting job. He was a refrigeration engineer in the Merchant Navy. While he's long since left that role, he had some 25 years since doing the same role for a large supermarket chain specialising in frozen foods. This was how I first knew him, and thus may have been a child influence on my travels. Just for the record, I never lived with him, though they only lived a couple of miles down the road. That's something you'd have had to have asked my grandmother about, and is beyond the scope of this pod. But it occurred to me, after I'd done a few of my podcasts, that it would make an interesting episode. It's travel-related, it's a historic snapshot of a life that's very different now, and above all, it's not something I think many of you would necessarily know about. Certainly, I didn't know about it a lot growing up, and as you'll hear, there's probably some reasons for that. So, a couple of years ago, I went to visit, took my laptop and microphone, and set about interviewing him all about his life and his adventures. The whole thing was two hours and eleven minutes long, and that's mainly why it's taken so long to get this episode out into the wild. Transcribing it was a whole job in itself. Be aware, too, that Gary has a strong accent and a slightly fluid way of speaking. This did not help the transcription. to start. It makes sense, I guess, to start at the very beginning. What made him go to sea and how did he find that initial voyage? Well, I first went to sea, like, the only reason I went to sea is I was trained as a refrigeration engineer and uh, one of of the engineers I worked with when I was learning my trade, he actually had been at sea himself, you know, back in the 1950s. And I thought, this sounds, this sounds good, this. In the Merchant Navy? Yeah, well, Merchant Navy was, yeah. Because you're not, but you see, you've got to remember, Merchant Navy is totally different from Royal Navy. Royal yes. Navy is military, you know, so it's all, you know, very strict. Whereas the Merchant Navy, like, you have to do, obviously, you've got to be sensible, this and the other. You, you also follow a captain as well, a chief engineer. You know, they take orders. But it's not so, like, regimented, you know. So long as you did, you turn up for your work, that was it, you know. 
And I thought, this sounds old, play this. And you got your own cabin. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, there was early ships, like you had a cabin and a wash basin in your cabin, that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, the crew didn't ever get that, you know, some of them. He also seems to have fitted in quite well on that first trip, though it definitely helps to have some good colleagues around you. But it's funny, actually, because the, um, the, chief, the chief refrigeration engineer, a fellow from Merseyside, dragging bloke, it was oh, really... Really put you at your ease because you, you're a new boy. Yeah. You do at sea. You're a first tripper, you know, you're virginal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that was fun. That's fun. But, but it, you know, every aspect of this situation, like every aspect. Uh, so, and he was great, he looked after you. Mm -hmm. He did, he was really good, nice bloke. And he had medals on his mm -hmm. uniform. In fact, there was one occasion, one occasion when, he, when someone told me you know, on the side, you know, that he was uh, uh, on one particular vessel, you know, because most of these guys all been in the war, in the yeah, military, yeah. in the war. So it was, it, so it, um, this engineer, engineering officer, I think it was a second or a, it might have been a chief, but they had more medals than the captain. <laughs> <laughs> and the captain wasn't very evident, this is a story I heard. The captain wasn't very impressed, like, but, but it's, it's in this, you know, this lower ranking officer had more medals than him. <laughs> so God knows what he'd been involved in. But like this guy, this guy from Merseyside, the chief refrigeration engineer above me, he had medals, I was quite impressed, you know, I saw them. And he was telling me, he says, you'd be great here since they're during a war, because they were all neutral or on our side. He says, we'd be. But being Argentina, it's, 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 you definitely see a body floating down, floating past the ship, you because know, that's a, uh, out like Wild West, yeah, yeah. you know, those, those countries, as you say, everybody had guns, you know. <laughs> it's, and it's funny as well, but it's, it's, it's comical what he said, you know. It was inter it's, it's interesting, you know, it's, it, was a bit, you know it, was, it was good, good time, good time to be at sea, though. We'll talk about the hierarchy of the ship more later, but first I wanted him to tell me a little bit, in his own words, about what the Merchant Navy actually did. It's different from the Royal Navy, but I wanted to know more about how and what. Well, it was the, um, the Merchant Navy base is like, you know, like the Royal Navy, so it doesn't go to war. You know, it doesn't, you know, it's, uh, it's trade, basically. You go, that's for, you go all over the world, you know, wherever it is. You're taking stuff out from this country or Europe and taking it out to the other side of the world where they can't produce it themselves. But what they can produce it themselves, we bring, you bring back. You know, like for example, uh, you take out, uh, what do you say, like um, machine parts, um, tractors, all the stuff. Britain, Britain and Europe uh, yeah, were not anymore, it's all Chinese. They were famous for building. Uh, even magazines, yeah, books, yeah, books and stuff. Uh, any general cargo. Yeah, a particular ship I was on, which is a reefer ship, which means refrigerated. That was the slang term for a refrigerated ship, and we had a big fleet. You know, and, uh, and you bring back, you know, if you went to New Zealand, you bring back lamb or uh, any de or dairy products because you had a refrigerated, you had refrigerated holds. How big was the ship? I mean, how much could it hold, your ship? Oh, God. That, that particular one, the first one, well, that particular one, it was like 14,500. Um, gross tonnage mm -hmm. because the tonnage is like different from you know as a ton yeah. you know and you have to convert it into it you know into a metric units now but they saw they were all like ships that were built in like 1960 you know very old because we're quite old you see his first trip with the merchant navy was not without incident although he does claim no responsibility for any diplomatic incidents but uh, like the first trip the first trip i went on first tripper you know First one to see, like um, that was uh, that was down to Argentina. Mm -hmm. It was, was South America, basically. It was in the days when um, 
well, just after the British got kicked out of, you know, the South America, mm -hmm. especially Argentina, like basically, but we still had a lot of influence down there. Yeah. We usually really take down there. I think, we, I think we've actually went out. Now, we took some general cargo, I think, from what I can remember, from London, because that's where his port of Russia was London. And uh, we went down there, we went through the Panama. Well, let me think, no, we didn't go through the Panama Canal because it, it was on the east coast of South America we went to, so we went across from North Atlantic to the South Atlantic. I've been a South Atlantic before the Falklands broke out. Nothing <laughs> to it, and I've been right down, went to Buenos Aires, yeah. And because uh, we had stopped over Brazil first, that's where I lost my virginity. We went to Uruguay, I don't know what we did in Uruguay, I can't remember what we did in Uruguay. Well, I got a photograph of me that in the. Uh, we done a, we done a Saturday afternoon. There'd been a couple of engineers off duty. Like uh, we grabbed a taxi and done a tour of the city. Went by the president his palace, old president his palace in Uruguay. Yeah, and uh, machine gun posts uh, all went on every corner. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Already, you can get the sense of where some of my adventurous streak and passion for lesser visited destinations may have come from. Everywhere is interesting. And certainly on his trips, he visited places tourists generally didn't go, especially not back then in the late 70s, early 80s. You'll hear later a couple more of his exploits to non-touristy destinations and slightly off-limit places. But I think it's important to provide a bit of background to the Merchant Navy. As Gary said, it's primarily a method of world trade. As you all know, the world is pretty large. In a straight line, it's 18,640 kilometres, or 11,580 miles, from where I live in England to the New Zealand Parliament building, and it would take about 650 days to walk it, assuming the pace I had on my hike across Great Britain, which was 18 miles a day. Except that you can't, because as you also know, the world is 71% water. Now, water, specifically ocean water, has the dual advantage of being both flat and apolitical. So if you want to set up long-distance training routes, the easiest way, logistically, is by sea. So they did. Think of it as being the naval equivalent of all of those long trucks and lorries you see on the highways and motorways. And just like those lorries, operated by companies such as Norbert Dentrasangle and Kuna Nagel, these ships were operated by companies like P&O, British India Steam Navigation, Federal Line, and many others. It wasn't one homogenous organisation in that sense, but certainly there was little difference in actuality between them, and they were all viewed as one block from outside. In the UK, at least, it was officially defined in 1835 with the first register of seamen, but obviously trading vessels had been around a long time before that. And although known by that name for many years, it was mostly referred to in official circles as the Merchant Service, the name Merchant Navy being officially bestowed in 1928 by King George V to honour the role played by the Merchant Service in World War I. The UK's Merchant Navy used to be a lot larger than it is now. In 2012, it carried 3% of the world's tonnage, which, although still a considerable amount, is considerably lower than the 33% that it carried in the pre-war period. We'll cover a little about one of the reasons why the Merchant Navy is so much smaller than it was later on in this episode. Stats from the UK government in 2012 state that the Merchant Navy covers over 1,500 ships with a gross tonnage of over 100, gross tonnage being the measure indicative of usable ship volume. International research suggests that this equates to vessels with a lower length of around 75 feet or 22 metres. You heard Gary mention his first ship was considerably larger than that. I have been trying to get this episode out to coincide with Merchant Navy Day, which is celebrated every year in the UK on September the 3rd. This day celebrates the role and service of the Merchant Navy, especially in times of war. 
The day itself was first observed in 2000 and appears to commemorate the sinking of the SS Athenia in 1939, the first merchant navy ship lost in the Second World War. Sadly, I'm 14 months late from my original intention with this episode, but the thought was there. So, on to life aboard ship. Now, obviously, one of the issues faced by ocean-going vessels will be the weather. I asked Gary if he'd ever had any bad experience with storms, sea swell, and that sort of thing. God, we had some terrible weather. Once you, once you were clear, like the coast, you know, like slightly uh, clearer, the, um, you get about a couple of days you're in the Atlantic and you're heading south. Mm-hmm. The weather picks up and it starts getting tropical. You know, mm-hmm. most of the time you're you're hot. Yeah, but of course, the, this, these particular ships are air conditioned, which I was responsible for. Mm-hmm. So it was really comfortable. I mean, because you go into your cabins at 20 degrees. Oh, 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 oh cold this, isn't it? You know, over 20 degrees, and I said, you're, you're roasted, you know, with 20 degrees in your cabin, because it's about 80 outside, yeah. you know, and they said, you know, like Fahrenheit, obviously. Um, that's 20 degrees C, obviously. You know, so it's a hell of a difference. Mm-hmm. When you're in the engine room, because you're wearing nothing in the engine room, and you're wearing under your border suit, you're under your underpants, that's it. And your boots always in socks, yeah, yeah. and a white border suit. Cotton. It'll, get, it'll get hot in there. Yeah, because you're sweating. Yeah, yeah. You really, it's, it was really, it takes you out, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it really did. Because you've got to heat the engine, obviously, you heat the engine, and also all, all the machinery. What's about that storm we hissed? Oh, that was the one, was I can't remember what it was there. It was in the Atlantic, wasn't it? No, I think it was, it was off the coast of. Uh, was it coast of America? I think somewhere, somewhere yeah, around there. It'd be like central South America. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's where we, those particular ship we actually used to run down on that particular vessel. It was every bad. night we were up doing lifeboat drill. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh yeah. Was, well, we think we, we wedged ourselves into the bar. The bridge, but the, the, <laughs> bar again. <laughs> but the crew, the uh, supplied with with sandwiches and stuff. Yeah. You know, so you couldn't really cook a proper meal to sit down and eat. You know, because what you normally do in rough weather. So it's supposed to, be. yeah, yeah. In rough weather, like what you do, they get the tablecloths on, 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 on in, in the saloon and they, they soak them down so they're wet. So things are dead, you know, and they put at all sides and which you could bring up, fixing the place. So you, you, you so you soup would land in your lap, <laughs> as where you're eating. But when it got too bad, you couldn't even. It was too dangerous to make anything, you know, boil anything, you cook anything up. It was too too dangerous. But I supplies with that temperature. Those, the ship she's talking about, at least they had supplies with some food to eat. Mm-hmm. But we was all we was all sat we was all sat on the, on the deck in the bar with steamers and life jackets, you know, around us. So the so we had so we were okay. So we had plenty of drink, was it? <laughs> yeah, plenty. So you got to, you know you plenty of beer or whatever. Yeah. That wasn't too bad. We made the best of it. Another stormy hit was in a less expected place on a run across the Mediterranean to Israel. We were saying about Benny Bear weather, but we said as I say was. On that Medi run on the, to Israel, and we ran into us. We hit a storm, and so it, it come out of nowhere. Because it's funny, was we thought, oh, Mediterranean, oh, yeah. Donald Cruise is the light, yeah, great. You saw, you know, and then of course this storm got up. And I was in my sitting in my cabin. Next minute, I'm on the other side of the cabin, chair and all, it's thrown because the ship had gone 45 degrees. Mm-hmm. And you're very fortunate in some ships. Sometimes they don't come back. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we did, but it took, it took a while. It was bloody uproar in the place of Bedlam. You know, I heard this shout next door because it was like in the afternoon, and the third officer, well, he was eight, 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 eight o'clock in the morning, what to midday, he was turned in because he had to go one at eight o'clock at night. 
Well, like when I my uh, my second trip, well, my first two trips to sea, I had to do that myself. It was uh, eight, eight in the morning to, to midday, mm. and then you come on again, come on again, eight, eight o'clock to mid to mid, midnight. And of course, at midnight you went straight to the bar, didn't you? <laughs> you didn't go to bed. You went straight because you'd be with the like um, the third third engineer, the fourth engineer, and myself, the refrigeration engineer, and we'd all be in the bar giving it this. Yeah, you it know. does explain them, I Yeah. It does. So you, you get to about two o'clock and you get up again like eight. So anyway, I heard this shout, this scream from next door. <laughs> so it made me throw that out of his bunk. He'd been hurled out of it. It's crazy. Right? He said, "Yeah, it's." Us. It's got thrown out because it, as it swam back, it t- took him out. Yeah, you know? and it was like um, a, a, an engine room bench, and the engine room, the most stablest part of the ship, is the bottom. Mm-hmm. If you like, yeah. yeah. And the engine, this bench had been thrown over. It tipped up. Absolutely, the place was in chaos. We'll be talking more about alcohol later, but you might well ask the obvious question: What about seasickness? Was that a problem on board ship? Yeah, when I first went to sea, yeah, I was seasick. Well, once it was over that initial. Yep. You know, got, got used to it, you know, like you're balancing, yep. like, like you. Uh, you're okay, but because we've been alongside so long, we had, we had to get a climb inside the game. It was unbelievable. It was virtually uh, not just me, it was everybody. All the, you know, virtually the entire ship, you know, virtually. But that's, you know, that's what it used to happen, you see. I've already spoken on previous pods about my lack of seasickness, but that said, I've never been on a large ship in the open ocean. The nearest I've got was on a glorified speedboat going to St Kilda in a Force 5 gale, which was, not going to lie, it was bracing for sure, but it's definitely not the same thing as crossing the entire ocean to the Americas or Oceania. And it's one of the many reasons I've not considered visiting Antarctica. I've heard too many tales of the roughness of the passage over there. And while it's tempting to hitch a lift on ocean-going yachts to island hop the South Pacific, and I met a few people in Vanuatu who had done exactly that, as it'd be the only realistic way to visit some of them, I have to admit, it's not something that's going to be on my bucket list. That I can't swim probably doesn't really matter. If you're going to go, you're going to go. It wasn't just weather that caused problems on board, though. Sometimes other technical problems occurred that would need fixing, and this could be anything from a minor leak to something just a bit more major. What this meant is that engineers like Gary always had to be prepared for action at a moment's notice. And this meant... Being prepared. So it was very much sort of you, yeah, you fixed so, what you could, how yeah, you could. They were like ship's rights, you know. Yeah. They were real proper seamen, you know. Mm-hmm. They did the job, yeah. Because we were, of course, in my capacity, it was a specialist job, you know, like like a, like a radio officer, like the radio officers would be, you know, or electricians, you know. Yes, that's we carried a lot of different stuff, didn't you? Yeah, we carried a lot. Yeah, 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 apart from that. But also, we just, so you had to carry all your spares. Mm-hmm. So, you carried everything with, with you. I mean, we carried back bags of cement, you know, you know, for fixing holes in pipes, stuff like that. You put a box around them and fill it up with cement. If a pipe went, you know, you know, which happened to me at one occasion. Sometimes it would take more than a bag of cement to fix a hole. I want to go to the, uh, the dockers. That we, had, we were trackers, we'd say that, to New Zealand. One of the dockers, you know, dropped the bloody tractor in the ship's hold. Because I was, I was working in the engine room, I heard this bloody great crash, boom, what the hell? And it's they come out, because they were so bloody useless, you know, at that, at that time over there, that uh, they, just, they just dropped it, that, 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 that had slung it correctly, you see. And so it so that had to be repaired, so the, docks, so that, the deck mm. had to be repaired, because you're, you're on the, uh, different levels, you know. You go down, like you've got your, your, your upper deck, lower deck, lower... What they call an overlock deck or a between decks, and then the hold, the main hold, 
So we could you could carry it at different temperatures, you know, and uh, carrying different different products, and he dropped his tractor anyway, and uh, so that had to be repaired. Yeah, the deck so, had to be repaired. The tractor. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's like the hatch out mm. to repair to get it repaired, which is uh, was a was a was a was an easy way. <laughs> and all the all the decks, you could open them all up. We close them with hydraulics. That's where it works. You know, that's how you open them. Um, all summer ships had different methods of you know working. Sadly, sometimes there's nothing you can do. Obviously, the dangers of shipping are well known, from weather to warfare, bad navigation to onboard catastrophe, and while Gary never experienced shipwreck, he has seen at first hand the terror of the unexpected disasters that can befall naval vehicles. The other thing about when we went to Uruguay, the sister ship was actually alongside in Uruguay, which is like um, this particular vessel. So what normally happens when a, sh- when a ship goes, it's built... They normally would build two normally. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what they call the sister ships. Yeah, yeah. There's slight differences obviously it's bound to be, but basically it's the same. So this was a sister ship sister ship, sister ship was alongside. And what he'd done he'd been in the because this is up the River Plate was another interesting place in the Second World War. Yeah. Um, so it was in the River Plate, so we're alongside this so we got in there. What they'd done one night, this particular ship <coughs> was travelling up the River Plate. It collided with a gas carrier. And evidently, because it was, it was one of the engineers was telling me because his mate was on board, had been on board. In fact, everybody on that particular ship, because they'd been old, they worked for older brothers, uh, that, that, that particular shipping company, they'd all have, um, they knew someone mm-hmm. who'd been on the ship. Yeah. And uh, the ship went up. Mm-hmm. This blew up, basically, because what happened was the gas... Got, they regularly got sucked in by the ship's air conditioning system and it, and it ignited. Mm. And the instant, presumably. Yeah, it was. There was, there was totally instant. Mm. So they reckon they found a body of one, one person. That was about it. Everybody was vapor, vaporised. Mm. So you could imagine what their ship looked like. Yeah. It was, I've never seen it. Well, first, first tripper anyway. Mm. See, like, Christ, the way. There's a Hulk. Mm. Yeah. Nothing, nothing. You can see the shape, obviously, in yeah. the combination, whatever, it survived. But absolutely, you know, you can imagine it's been for a something's been for a massive fire, you know. So it was quite sobering. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> I imagine obviously. On a, but, your, you said that was your first trip. You saw that. I saw that. Yeah, first trip. Oof. See, one of the things I found out later, like, gas carriers. Then when you're getting around the coast of um, well, any any country, especially in the UK, and they're like small small vessels, yeah. and they carry this propane, propane mm. liquid, liquid petroleum, uh, liquid petroleum gas LPG yeah. carriers are. And they carry it, and there's also all sorts of safety reasons that go on them. But it's unfortunate that in this particular unfortunate occasion, they collide in a plate in, in the yeah. river plate. So that, would, so that was it. It was just one of the dangers of the job, and everyone knew it. It was just something you accepted as being a risk. You're a long way from the nearest hospital, especially in the early 80s. So if something went wrong, you had to rely on the ship's medics and hope that it wasn't too serious. As far as I'm aware, no one died on board any of the ships Gary served on, though it wasn't a question that occurred to me to ask when I was doing the interview. One of the important aspects of life on board a merchant navy ship is the job itself and the work environment. But before we went into that, it's first useful to give an indication of the size of the ship. You've already heard how much it can hold, but let's have an indication as to how big it is in practical terms. Wasn't there about 40 people on the ship? Yeah, average about that. Yeah, that's all they'd be like, you know, not in the Navy, the Royal Navy. Yeah. Like they carry hundreds, you know, on a, on a little vessel, you know, not even the size of one, you know, the size, you know, one, 
ones like I was on, you know, because ones were not particularly, particularly big, yeah, but big enough, yeah. So you did race in an afternoon, you probably wouldn't see anybody because people would be turned in or they'd be working somewhere else. That's you know, you see, you see people who's on duty, ridiculous crew, that's I mean, that sort of thing. See, you could be on a nice ship, I mean, they go on about these cruise liners, but you can't, you're packed in. <laughs> yeah, well, I've seen of those. It looks, it looks terrible. Whereas it was on the ships, was like ships I worked on. You know, it's great. You don't see anybody. Gary was a refrigeration engineer. This is someone whose job it is to make sure that the cold storage systems work. Since the ships he served on were designed to transport goods that needed to be kept at cold temperatures, almost exclusively food, this meant that his role was incredibly important. There were several other refrigeration engineers on board, and they worked shifts, which he talked about at length. You know, if you're on day work, because as you say, we didn't have refrigerated cargo on board. Yeah. You just weren't. You're a chief. You know, the, the two refrigeration electricians would all be on day work. With the engineers, mates would be on shifts. Obviously, yeah. the electricians were always actually on day work because the nature of their job. But because we started carrying refrigerated cargo, those fridge engineers had to be on watch as you yeah. were so, so there's something on duty to see if anything goes wrong all the time however having said that there was a dead watch between 12 and 4 well, in, overnight yeah yeah, yeah. where it was well there was no refrigeration because to, to to do a proper shift for 24 hours you got at least three people yeah I was thinking and that's what it is so you carry the three engineers and then you carry three junior engineers yeah. who've done the, you know done might be a cup of tea, yeah. sort of thing, and, and you, you to have, get the oil in done. You yeah. have a senior engineer and a junior engineer on at the same time. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. So you part, you're yeah. basically partnered with the same person for the whole trip, I guess. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's quite right. But you knew everybody else anyway. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I used to work, when I was a junior, I used to work 8 to 12, you know, yeah. morning, morning night, yeah. night. And the, the senior would work 4 to 8, as it were. Yeah. 5, 6, 7, 8. Yeah, so it's 4 yeah, hours. Four so you're 4 hours. So yeah. 4 hours on. Um, but there's that 12 to 4. 12 to 4. Well, what you did, because we've got alarm systems yeah. on board. Yeah, but not in your cabin. And in the, the later ships, there was alarms in your cabin as well. When it was only run for a duration, you, mm. yeah, you still you carry a electricity. You were on so call. Basically, it was on call. Yeah, yeah the, alarm, the alarm would call you. Yeah. All the engine crew would call you. Mm. Yeah, it was on jury, but the alarm went off in the, in, in the engine room. And it's phoned you up because you had a phone in your cabin. Yeah. On these later ships, not the not the first two of them. So basically, that's how it worked out. So basically, when you weren't carrying cargo, you were on day work like electricians. Uh, this also had practical follow-on considerations, including meal times. You, you, you all eat together at the same time, then presumably. And... Well, if, well, basically, you keep in watch, you keep in shift. You see, oh, so you're all, yeah. everyone on the same shift. Well, you yeah. move around like yeah, it depends on the time. Yeah, but you you or you it's um. Take over someone so yeah. we could get a meal. That's all. Mm-hmm. If, depending on how, you sh- how your shifts fell, your and watches fell. The crew would have the, they they on. A oh, no, the crew. There was a, they had a mess room. The crew were in a mess room, mm-hmm. um, and we had a saloon, and we was waiting on because you had carriage stewards, stewards as well, bedroom stewards they called them. So we had white, white jackets as well. And we had to wear uniform, whereas eating for meals mm-hmm. you know, or any official functions, we had to wear uniformed. You know. Uh, my crew obviously weren't. It was a different separation, yeah. you see. I mean, I'll say our accommodation was better than theirs, obviously. But you still, we all worked together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we worked, all worked together, obviously. Anyway. The first job I had in the energy industry, where I stayed for over 20 years, was a rotating shift pattern, 
but in an office environment where we were working on our own and where we could easily swap our shifts with someone else. I tended to prefer the night shifts, which were, when I worked, it was 10pm till 8am. The person on the rotor pattern immediately before me preferred the 8am to 3pm morning shifts, so it became standard for us to swap. It is a very different way of working, though, to know that you don't really have a set routine and to know that you could be on call at any moment if there was any sickness or unexpected holiday. And in my job, there are only seven of us. But difference being, of course, we lived within an hour of the office. We didn't actually live in the workplace. Going back to his role, though, Gary touched on something else that was an important aspect of ship life. We've heard him mention in passing earlier about the crew and the officers and some of the roles on board. But of course, despite it not being a military vessel, it's still an enclosed space where people are going to have to both work and live alongside each other in a similar way. And if only to maintain a peaceful and efficient working environment, there's going to be a need for some kind of demarcation and structure. This isn't an office space where people can just go home and rant or call in sick without repercussions or even avoid people they've conflicted with. In addition, although there's obviously a mindset shift between work life and non-work life, there's much less of a work-life balance split as you're essentially living at work, similar to the likes of oil rig workers, but also in a sense like many residential care workers do. And this had repercussions for the layout of the ship too, as it meant certain parts on board were purely reserved for certain roles or ranks. I say it was really you worked in shifts if you had cargo on board, if you had general cargo on board. That was for me actually refrigeration. Mm -hmm. We had this like it was it was odd. Because you had your accommodation, and then in the corridor, you cut the, 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 the cabana way, like on the, the starboard side of the ship, that was where I slept, and engineers, you know, and the, and the, deck, and the junior deck officer, I think. Next deck up, near to the bridge, you had the, you, you just like your senior mm-hmm. deck officers, and the captain and the chief engineer. And, uh, well, what was once. The refrigeration engineer, the chief and the junior refrigeration engineer, we were sort of cameras were opposite each other, so just off, you know, mm-hmm. off, the, off the main accommodation, as it were, on this particular vessel. And in this particular, there was a separate door for the rest of the ship. Mm-hmm. The idea being, like, once the cargo was on board, the refrigeration is part of the cargo, so it's mm-hmm. kept the door shut, so it was like a demarcation, yeah. like, there's a lot of that that went on. It was like the ranks, you see. Mm-hmm. See, when I, I become a refrigeration, senior refrigeration engineer, I've got two bars, two gold bars on my shoulder. Yeah. And of course, having the third engineer, he had two gold bars. Mm-hmm. Second, second mate, two gold bars. All the ones, like the uh, fourth engineer, would be one gold bar. Yeah. Junior engineer, like electrician, one bar. Senior electrician, two bars. Mm-hmm. And then it increased, it, 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 amongst the engineers and the, uh, the mates, it increased perceptively. Second engineer, three bars. Mm-hmm. Mate, three bars. Captain, four. Mm-hmm. Chief engineer, four. That's as far as you got. I asked him about other roles on the ship and who else you needed in order to make it function. Seaman was one of the, um, he was AB, which is, means able seaman. Where you get on the, the crew, like you, you, they do like qualification as well. You get um, an ED, uh, EDF, is it efficient, you get efficient seaman. Okay. Then you go to AB, which is able seaman, which is what you have in an AB anyway, mm-hmm. as well. Which is slightly higher up because you have more skills. Because even like there's a lot, there's a lot of skills required on seamanship. Mm-hmm. You know, even though you haven't got any sails, yeah. But you still got know how to, you know, yeah. Be able to put, put together a load of canvas and stuff like that, and do splice ropes and stuff like that, and, and, and get get it rigged. Mm-hmm. You know, put your masts in, stuff yeah. like that. Get the gangway up, whatever. Put it out. Uh, make sure the lines are taut. 
for the tugs mm. to take, take you out, you know, and alongside, and be ready if, you, if a storm blows up, if yep. you're in a storm port, like in Tila, you know, be ready to take the ship out any moment's notice, because if a storm blew up, you'd be wrecked. Because yep. cause, cause Tila, we in Central America, that's particular places where it could happen. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of skills in boats, and then of course you become a boatswain, mm-hmm. and you charge everybody. Yep. A boatswain is mm-hmm. a boatswain. He's in charge of that crew, right? And he had the donkey man who's like in charge of the uh, engine room crew, you know, like greasers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would have been the old days, it would have been stokers. Yeah. But of course, these are motor ships, they weren't uh, steamships. But I did work on a steamship once, and my first um, first trip to sea was on a steam turbine. And uh, Macca, Macca ship, beautiful, you know, all brass, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that sort of thing. You know, well, you see the old telly, old films, you know, stuff like that. And then, of course, he had an electrician. He was uh, green, had a green bar. Mm-hmm. Red out was a pale blue, and uh, the purser who was in charge of the you know, catering, in charge, in charge of catering, he was double bar as well. He was a senior officer, and he, he, he had a bloody good cabin, you know, like, like the captain's, because yeah, he was he was a, he was responsible for the paperwork basically. Yes, yeah, for yeah. the uh, Richardin, the uh, co- uh, personnel on board. Everybody. Responsible for the money as well, isn't it? Oh yes, oh yes, that's why we used to call him the chief thief. <laughs> I was, I'm not joking. I was, I was, I was a term of chief thief. But if you had a good chief on board, if you had a good purser on board, they don't like being called chiefs, they like being called purses. Yes. Which is basically what they were. You charge the purse. Yeah. They doled out the money for when you were in port, mm-hmm. the foreign currency they need. Yeah. Yeah, you've doled out. They do you they make sure you get your wages, get your, your correspondence, all that sort of thing. All that sort of domestic issues you yeah, got. Yeah. They're like the domestic one in charge of domestics, you know, basically on board a ship. Whereas the rest of us around specialised jobs. Yeah, yeah basically. That's so it. You ran the ship and he ran the Well, I ran the refrigeration plant. Yeah. Because it was a refrigerated ship. I mean, you had other vessels with general cargo. They may have a, a, may have a locker mm-hmm. that might carry some refrigerated food, as well as also the food for the galley. And that would be run by the engineers because mm-hmm. you didn't actually need a, special, you need a person just for that job. Yeah. You Because know? it's important if you lose a cargo, <laughs> the ship's lost all its money. Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what the idea was, you took the general cargo out, and that would pay for that particular, that particular trip. And what you come back with, was all profit, pure yep. profit. That's and that, and that, and that was, and you pay enough profit, you got enough to build another ship. Mm-hmm. That's how you get your fleets built. Mm-hmm. And so that's I say that's IPO General Cargo Division was the biggest one in the world. Yeah, really was. If you had these supposed on board, you know, one it was it's like a skin flint. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my, you know, much sure, look how much money I've saved, company, you know, miser. Yeah, then you had a, your ship was a good eater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they had a shit so. And they had a decent cook. You, they, they were they were good ships. Those they were the best. They were yeah. They, they were good. If you had decent pearls, I'd be laughing. Yeah, but I've said were quite a few of words. Sometimes there were clashes with the people on board, as you might expect, given being in an enclosed space for so long, surrounded by the same people, and especially as we'll hear later, alcohol was the easiest way of switching off from work mode. Gary was party to one incident on the first trip he did. Oh my God, that was some tough boatings. Jesus Christ. Well, you have to be in that job, don't you? Especially in the five ships. Yeah. Talk about tough, wasn't it? It was not bloody, is it? I was seeing an AB. He was from Stornoway. Oof. And the Bowser was from Stornoway as well. Yeah. As in weather wise, anyway. Oh, weather wise, yeah. But these two both from Stornoway. And they were getting into fights. <laughs> We've seen the Bowser one more. He said, Where's your teeth? He didn't want his teeth knocked out, but he's having a boat. Well, his AB. His AB literally just built like a Hulk. He literally, literally was. Lovely bloke, though. I got I got great with him, you know, as you do, as you had to, basically. Yeah, yeah. But he wasn't a bully, really, like this. Mm-hmm. But he, saw, he took no nonsense. Mm-hmm. 
Because I've been in a, when they're partying in a crew bar, when they, when they don't say it's a fire ship, and they made this bloody big punch okay. you know, in this bloody big tureen. And uh, they all got drunk, you know. And then next minute, someone stumbled into it. <laughs> and the thing was, the, um, one of the uh, galley crew, you know, uh, stewards, if you like, they worked in the, like a galley boy, if you like, knocked it, actually knocked it onto this post and just AB's foot, I told you. And he said to him, he says, did you just knock out my foot? He said, well, yeah. And so he's going, oh, boom! He knocked him out with his head. Oh, God, screaming. I thought, what have I joined? <laughs> <laughs> Finally, there was also a slight rivalry between the Merchant Navy and the military. Gary told me this incident while going through the Panama Canal. And another occasion, the second mate was telling me we were going through the Panama Canal. And uh, because of the Panama Canal, you have to have their own pilots mm-hmm. take you through. And, you know, and, and usually, because it was a military base there once, so when I first went through there, it was all military. And uh, so, and you see the, you know, the military personnel on a, on a weekend out in their speedboats, you know, enjoying the, you know, the weather. Because it was this tropical. And uh, we, we, on this particular trip, this particular captain, the, um, the, the the pilot comes on board, American baseball cap, yeah. bag with him, gets on board. Uh, uh, um, he says, uh, Captain Smith, up his room. He's smiles. He says, shit, shite, it's all the same to me. Shit, it's all the same to me. And the second mate, and the second, the second mate was there. He said, you met him. Yeah, yeah, and the bridge wind stopped because he was laughing. He said, imagine the look at this boat, the captain's face. And next minute, he said, right. You know what you're doing, don't you? Case of radio out, switches on, starts eating, starts, starts having a snack. <laughs> and he couldn't do a thing about it because he was actually in charge of the ship, this part. At the time, so he, he wrote out to the captain. But in the case of emergency, the captain could take over. Mm-hmm. You know, like if anything really dire, dire happened. So I didn't give him money, he was all ready. That's about the life, I don't care who you are, you know. This is what he put the said to the second mate. It must have been so bloody funny. He said, Yeah, I turned away. He was alarming. From a personal preference point of view, I famously don't really get along with authority figures, as you surely already know. So the idea of not only working in an environment where the chain of command by necessity has to be quite rigid, because a ship in the ocean is no place for dissent or questioning command in the moment, but also being stuck around those same people all day and night would absolutely not be anywhere on my radar. I'd have been laid off at the first port. It's just not something I don't think I could even do grudgingly. It's also why I never applied for Big Brother, despite every one of my friends saying it would make good television if I did. Every single one. I value my mental health more than that. Sorry. Obviously, food was an important aspect of daily life. After all, when you're feeling peckish on a huge vessel in the middle of the ocean, you can't just wander off to the nearest Tesco Express or 7-Eleven. In fact, meals tended to be more formal get-togethers in the canteen, with a limited menu, albeit more varied than you might expect. You get all your meals to provide, obviously, because you had it in the cellar. There was a cook, presumably, on board. Oh, yeah, there was two cooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, chief cook, and it's like the um, second cook, which was normally classed like, who used to call him a baker. Mm-hmm. The uh, galley boy was on a trade as well, yeah. yeah sort of like a job, yeah, that sort of thing. And uh, I would have qualified, I would have to go to Catering College. So I obviously come from uh, Merseyside, mm-hmm. Catering College. And even the engineers went to college at um, Merseyside. Mm-hmm. What was that, Riversdale? I think it was rivers down near Sefton, so that, that way. I don't know if it's still going. And 
slowly down your breakfast. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and supper. Yeah, if you wanted it. That's all. What sort of food was it? Oh God, you could have uh, well, your breakfast is like normally full, full English breakfast, or you put on a special one. You know, you could have fruit, whatever, uh, cereal, you know, all that sort. Of. Um, like three courses if you like. Mm -hmm. You put on like they might do, like um, poached eggs. Say a like, poached egg breakfast, so you like bacon, poached egg, whatever, like yeah, you know, and all the, all the trimmings, you know, whatever's always ever on the menu that day, what they could provide, you know, because that to be remember you had to be, yeah. You're vitamin, we're called the chief steward because you're carrying a purse, the purse of chief steward, like it was over all the, the catering staff. And, and so we had to work out how much food mm -hmm. we do for that trip, you see, especially with on your way back. And they try and want it as tight as possible, you yeah. see, you know, because they look good on their records, you see. So you couldn't go overboard, so to speak, with your food allocation, but it certainly wasn't rushing down to the ounce. And we'll hear more about the flexibility around that later. Obviously, some foods spoil, although since you worked on refrigeration ships, that was less of an issue since there was cold storage right there, which definitely would have helped matters. And of course, they'd replenish in port anyway. One thing they did tend to like, though, was fresh milk. Yeah. So, so you did three meals a day, and they had a little mess room where you could make yourself a cup of, cup of, cup of tea, a coffee, whatever, from the machine, and there'd be a, a little fridge in there stocked up with food you could make a supper with of an evening, you know, with usually what's, been on, what's mainly been on that, that, that evening meal, you know, you know, your dinner will be left over, like some cold meats. Cold meats would have been on some, some sausages, cold sausages, some like cheese, and so we, And you had the milk in there, it was long life milk. But what you then, once you get to somewhere like got in port somewhere, especially with New Zealand, yeah. you took on fresh milk, you had fresh milk every day, so all the engineers, all the, most of the officers, we would put an order with a local milkman. He'd come down to the ship, he'd put the order, all this crate of milk, yeah. and we'd have like, a break time. Mm -hmm. We'd swing about a pint of milk, we'd just make it all cream, because it was New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And it, was, and it made a very big difference from the from the UHT milk. Oh, God, just a bit like. Although well, you, you got used to that UHT milk, it was quite nice. Yeah. Oh, I've used it before, but yeah. it's, it's. We got used to it, you know. yeah. As an aside, I used to use UHT milk a lot in my younger days precisely because it lasted longer, and I didn't use it that often, just the occasional bowl of cereal or a milkshake. It was. I mean, it was perfectly potable, but in the same way that store brand cola is. The food offered also depended on the company who owned the ship, the chef and the staff who crewed it, and the itinerary and destination of the voyage. Gary here now tells us what happened when one voyage he was on was crewed by an Indians. As I say, you had a cook for the crew, a cook for the officers, yeah. and of course, they turned in curry every day. <laughs> I had the best curries in my life. I can imagine. I bought it there for lunchtime, and it was, the best one was the double curries. Mm. Oh, was absolutely superb. And you, what, they fed you anything you want. If you want a second, if you want a second helping, no problem. Mm. I mean, one bit of the oh, that bit of the, that bit of the ship actually, uh, which is which is Indian crude. I mean, second mate, you had a steak dinner because every Sunday, you had a steak dinner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, if you had steaks, obviously, yeah. steak was always it was it was traditional. Yeah, you know. so uh, you finish your steak dinner and you order another one. <laughs> if you don't have a white if you don't have a white cruise ship, you'd be you'd be you don't yeah, yeah. you can't you can't do that. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> The Indian crew that you treat like you were treated like kings. Yeah. Yeah. And there was no there was no problem in it. For example, my steward on that particular on that on that particular ship, he says, Why do you not come down for breakfast? I was too what's his line? I was having I always no I went to breakfast, I was out late. You know, he couldn't understand it. He said, Why do you not eat? You must eat. Yeah. I was on a white cruise ship. It was over for the greatest greedy bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. 
Sometimes, though, it was not unknown for the officers to take matters into their own hands. So the thing we came out of New Zealand, and we were the first, we were the first vessel, evidently, who was sort of a trade around what they call the Pacific Basin now. Mm-hmm. We were the, it was the first one that's opened up the trade with China, mm-hmm. yeah, from New Zealand. And of course, it was supposed to be a secret, and uh, on, on board the ship at the time. Of course, we had it on the radio in New Zealand. <laughs> it, it, was, it was common knowledge. It was for the radio. Yeah. So we loaded up all this stuff from New Zealand, from, from New Zealand to, like, to China. And Japan, we've gone to China and Japan. So we got to, uh, as we loaded this stuff from New Zealand, like, you know, took crayfish of all things. We loaded up the crayfish, you know, lobsters, basically, yeah. well, basically yeah. lobster. And for, that was for Japan, for the, for the embassies mm. in Japan. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's for. When we got to Japan, it was, we'd be raiding the cargo, hadn't we? And the crew would be raiding the cargo. But we only, only, all we took was the lobsters. Because they're into the ship, they're unloading the ship, like, and the, the second mate is on duty. He says, This is scandalous. He's going, because he was, he was a, he was a serious story about him. He was a nice bloke, very straight, went public, he went to private school, you know, very well, you know, well spoken, good, good navigator, whatever, like, you know, but very, very um, you know, straight, yeah. very, very straight, you understand. And uh, he said, this is absolutely scandalous. Because basically, and all the Japanese, you know, the, the Japanese superintendents, they're laughing. They just couldn't believe it. He said, where's all the lobsters? Because <laughs> all gone. I mean, we had lobsters, didn't we? We had lobsters, didn't we? We had a little fridge in our cabin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were thought we had a fridge, so we could, it was great. You know, in that respect. I mean, uh, I think the senior officers, like Captain the Chief, they had their own fridges as well. And I think the mates did as well. But uh, no, it wasn't common for everybody. I mean, we, he'd been bought on a previous trip, you see. Someone some got a short ball of fridge for the camp, for the ship. Unfortunately, on AC, those were the vessels. The early ships were on DC. Mm-hmm. So basically, you had to have a transformer to convert their the power. Because the older ship, you see. So we were lucky we had a fridge. So I've almost said, I mean, you're like, Christ, you know. I'll get two lobsters. I'll get two lobsters. I'll get two lobsters. lobsters. She made a salad. And this, we talked to the radio officer. We was having a drink with us before we went down to his dinner. I said, oh, it's all right, the salad. <laughs> what I should have done, I should him to stay, really. Mm. You know? So that was it. So, And, uh, I mean, everybody knew what was going on, yeah. apart from his second mate, because we knew if he said it, if he finds out, he'll tell the captain. Mm-hmm. But the thing was, but he was the only one who did. He was the only one who missed out. Well, some of the nights, oh, I see the crew having a lobster supper again tonight. You know, booze, big booze up and you know, lobsters everywhere. Like, yeah, <laughs> all thought because well, they were free, they were free cooked and frozen, deep frozen. So you just took them out of the freezer, yeah. they deep freezing the hold. And uh, I mean, this is, I mean, this is theft. You know, it is breaking the law basically. Yeah. But the funny thing was though, we got to see. Uh, and it's in New Zealand, I think it was, or was it somewhere after after Japan? And on the menu, in the main menu, comes ah, crayfish, <laughs> hey, crayfish, nice. And the chief engineer, who happens to be a New Zealand as well, I had to come down for this. He said, you know, had to come on for this one. I said, I was in the menu. And the captain said, yes, it's, it's free. They've done very well, haven't they? You know, <laughs> who the hell bought lobsters to eat on board a ship? So even the captain knew what was going on, what the score was. Okay. So, but he, he was the sort of guy who was, you know, he literally was, you know, he would turn a blind eye, you yeah. know, fair enough, <laughs> you, know, you know, knew the score, basically. Obviously, this was not common or expected practice, but since it happened so long ago, I'm sure no one's going to press charges. But for clarification, this is theft, and I'm absolutely not endorsing this sort of thing. Would have been funny, though. 
the important things to bear in mind about the job was the sheer length of the journeys involved. Bearing in mind that Gary in particular trips all the way from the UK to New Zealand, um, I asked him how long that took. Well, normally that New Zealand one, you normally say about 14 days to get across the Atlantic for Europe, mm -hmm. and then you pass through the Panama Canal. There was like another two, another, ooh, two weeks or so across the Pacific. Mm -hmm. We didn't see anything. Yeah. Empty. Yeah, you might see the occasional strip, but you see lots of islands. It depends what you're pulled into. Mm -hmm. um, Would you have stopped off anywhere en route to... No, you stop off in Panama, take on the bunkers, mm -hmm. yeah, which is fuel, and yeah. fresh water, and maybe some supplies, you know, because you took all your food with you, obviously. And uh, so basically, you could, it was like, um, you could be a good month to see, you know, mm -hmm. easy. And for much of that time, there was nothing to see except the horizon. The journey was like being on a motorway of the A45 through Cambridgeshire, or an interstate through Kansas. But it was on that particular ship for about five years, going down to um, running down to New Zealand. We got sort of like a liner, the liner, the liner routes, basically, mm. not like a cruise liner, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. a liner because you're on one set, you know, like, yeah, a liner. like, like, like on a train, mm -hmm. you know, there was one set so, like, in the city for like, as we did. And the old saying was, once we got out of port, I remember the second officer, he was, you know, like second mate, he turned around and said, right, we was, up, we was up underway, up the sea. It's all right, put on the tram lines. There was a sign at sea, you got put on the tram lines. And we used to always say, you know, you think you follow the empty beer cans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By this time, you just follow the empty beer cans. Because also there was an awful lot of uh, beer drinking going on. And the likes of things, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking about beer soon. I mean, we've already started talking about it. But as for the journey, even once in port, you might be there for, well, quite a while longer than you expect. So uh, we were about a month in Auckland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were this month. We were growing barnacles on the ship. Like we was there, that flipping along. Like normally, you'd average about a week or so. You know, or maybe a couple of days. You know. It follows on that the crew had to make their own entertainment whilst on board. Some of it was quite benign. Remember that this was in the days before podcasts, before personal music systems, even. That said, I'd imagine even today the internet access on board no ship-going vessel somewhere in Kiribati might not be quite equipped with state-of-the-art broadband internet connectivity anyway. You made your own entertainment, mm. the, yeah, in that respect. So, because you carried videos with you and films, yeah. you, and what you do, you get in a port, you change the films around, it's a bit of own projector and screen and stuff, and, and the crew would have to use it as well. Because so, that was what you, your sole entertainment was, you know. Mm -hmm. Now these floor shows, you know, yeah. on, a, on a cruise line, and all that sort of stuff, you know. The, the different bars, and that, that's it. You had to do it all yourself, you know, which is great, and you know, Plenty of books and stuff to read anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was okay. I mean, I used to be turned in for about half past nine of the night. Because mm -hmm. you've been working all day. Yeah. And you're at sea. And sea air is really good for you. It makes you yeah, really yeah. sleepy. And you don't get, you don't get, uh, you don't get bored about the noise in the engine room or anything like that. Because if... You get used to it, you? Well, you, Oh, yeah. It rocks you to sleep. It's certainly in decent weather as mm -hmm. well. You get, you get cold as well. So we usually be, I'll grab a sandwich and a, you have some long life milk. Because that's milk we used to carry as long life, so yeah. last time something was in cartons, you know. So, and uh, turn, read a book and turn in, yeah, that sort of thing. But it, but it was okay, it was great. One thing to bear in mind was the state of the accommodation, given that you'd be spending an awful lot of time holed up in your cabin. Because I, I worked with a fellow in Iceland, he was, uh, he was on a bulk, you know. Yeah, he's, he was like the third engineer. But he, had his own, he had his own cabin, but in his cabin he had his own... Um, wash, you know, his own bathroom, study, and a study, good sake, a day room, you know, what the hell, see, all we had was a bunk and a desk, you know, and a sink in a corner on the cargo ships. Of course, it got better later, mm -hmm. I mean, Lizzie went to see us, we had our own bathroom, 
luxury, you know, had your own bath or a shower, like, you know, it was a luxury. Mm. Yeah, but that was on, that's because it improved the combination. Mm. You see, a lot of those old ships, they wasted a lot of space because they had, like, the decks and the sides, mm. you know. Uh, so there was a lot of that space could have been used because all you do, you went out there and just sat down, basically, <laughs> on, the, you know, on the bench or you know, whatever, like, you know, you look and gaze out to see it, nothing, basically. You know, so all that space was, was but it was, it's how they built them. Mm-hmm. However, for most of the times, there was always the bar. Just like for food, the ships Gary was on had two bars, one for the crew, one for the officers, essentially. There was, of course, rivalry between the bars, which led to some funny incidents playing out. Here, Gary tells us about a darts match between the crew and the officers that both sides were determined to win by hook or by crook. You, know, you got together on social nights as well, you know, for playing a darts match. <laughs> They'd be kind of great rivalry darts matches. Honestly, the stories I could tell you about that. <laughs> And it used to be really, used to be really good actually. Like every every uh, once a week of a night, the crew would you know, the um, the catering staff would uh, cook up a load of pizzas, you know, sandwiches, a lot, and we'd all be in either we were in their bar because we had our own we had bars we had, a, we had bars as well. There you go, for a drink, uh, and we'd be up. You know, we'd take it turns once um, the, the, on the darts nights, we would go to their bar, and then we'd come to ours, you know, and then we'd play the, play the match. Um, and it was very rented one sheet in here I sat with is a cover of Newcastle and he was he'd been at sea a long time. I think he was he was a nice bloke. It was it was so important to him to win this match for some reason. Oh god. It was a, he couldn't care less about anything else. It's when I win this darts match. And it's and the bosun built this darts trophy. It was it looked like a spear. It was like that big. You know, it's supposed to represent a dart, you see. It was, it was absolutely grotesque, <laughs> you know. Anyway, we eventually went out and bought a trophy, you know, from, from somewhere in the... He was in, in Liverpool or, uh, or New Zealand somewhere. He got a decent trophy, like, you know, a proper one. You know, done in, but anyway, this was just a, a temporary, like, you know, he's had a good job. It, so, because it was all built by hand. There's no yeah. machines on board, apart from the, the engine room. We might have had a labour in it. I don't know if we even had a labour, actually. So anyway, one night the crew won the darts trophy. They won this darts trophy because when you keep it in your bar, the winner keeps it in their bar yep. for the week. So we won, like we won it. They won, you know, and the chief engineer's face is like thunder. You know, it's really, really annoyed. So I had to hand over the trophy to him. I said, "It gives me great pleasure <laughs> to hand over this trophy." You know, and all the crew were laughing, and the chief engineer's going. Tearing his, tearing his bloody hair out virtually, you know, because <laughs> what he did, he, he pulled my junior, it was because there was two fridge engineers, was a senior, well, well, yeah, senior, senior refrigeration engineer, junior refrigeration engineer, as it were. So uh, he actually pulled him off duty, you know, from his watch, you know, where he should have been working. Mm-hmm. He pulled him off it's, it got, could, because he was such a great darts player this, on this occasion. So it says, and it's, it's, the, junior, the junior said, I'm sorry, it's the chief. You know, I said, don't worry, man. it's okay. He said, no worries. I said, you don't care. I don't care if you're on watch. He says, you're, you're playing darts. And fortunately, they won that day. Like, the, the officers won that day. <laughs> so he was made up. And they got, oh, great by him. Oh, yeah, great. Even when in port, or possibly especially when in port, the entertainment and the beer continued. The first thing you go to shore, like everybody tells you, anybody the nearest bar, you know, or once or a bar that's got a good name, or you go further afield, the crew would go to the nearest bar. Yeah. You know, we would sort of offer this, we'd be more. Was it Charles? That's what Susie used to do. Charles, we were in when we were all sitting in the bar, the Tavern on the Oh, God, yeah, it was good. 
Yeah, because then what's the ship supposed to be sailing in ten minutes? <laughs> Somebody will have a round of beer. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't have gone because half the crew were there. You couldn't have gone like half the crew was there. And it, it, you can't sail unless you got a full. You got a certain amount of crew on board. But the one person you can't sail is the radio officer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And obviously, one of the radios was telling me, he says, he says, one poor, he was on one particular trip. He says, I've actually been offered money by the crew to stay ashore. So they wouldn't sail because they were such a good time. He said, I was tempted. It was a lot of money because crew, the crew, could, they could pay bloody good money, actually. Well, mind you, to put the hours in the thing and leave like we did. Because the leave right on there for an officer was like uh, two on, four off, if you like. So you might, an average year trip for me would last about four months. Yep. So you really get about uh, two months off. It's how sorry it works. It's the way around it works. And of course, you've heard all those tales about ships coming into port and everyone getting very, very drunk. Well, it's not a stereotype. But while it might sound like alcohol was the default option, you were, of course, in your workplace and you always had to be careful and stay responsible, especially as all the jobs on board were vital to the running of the ship. It absolutely couldn't be a place for slacking and not pulling your weight. And also, you used to get drunk, but the thing was... So long as you were able to work, yes. that's what matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, I mean, don't have flame flaming times, you know, at sea. Yeah. Presumably being drunk but not, on but duty not, was but a not bit on of duty, a... But yeah. not, never on duty. Yeah. If I used to go up the water, it would be a rarity. I mean, I'm not proud of this, but it was the same with all of us. Uh, it used to be a rarity to wake up in the morning and not to have a hangover. Because yeah. by midday, you're clear, you're yeah, okay. Yeah, see air. It's only, yeah. it's only, it's only, and also be young. It's yeah. only in twenties. And presumably also, you couldn't do it now. What you were doing was so intensive. Oh God! In a sense yeah, the was it was so hot. Yeah, you sweat, so you sweat, just, sweat you, out. Yeah, and you. But you had to take it. salt tablets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was. But I remember, on one occasion, I was still quite, still new-ish, as it were, and I thought, God, what's happened to me? I lightheaded because mm -hmm. like a salt. So not about this salt. Don't forget too, though, this was the 80s, and even in strong office culture, drinking on the job was, well, I mean, drinking actually on the job was frowned upon, but liquid lunches, early finishes to the pub, and even post-success celebrations were all not just tolerated, but actively encouraged. Industries well noted for this included journalism, politics, and many parts of finance, but especially the traders and the brokers who run the stock markets. One assumes that it's much more regulated now, but then, as we'll hear at the end, it's a much smaller crude operation now anyway. So, all this talk of downtime leads us naturally on to talking about shore leave. Now, shore leave was an opportunity to let your hair down and have fun without worrying about work the next day and without having to worry about anything on board ship. On one occasion, there was the, uh, myself, third mate, who had his wife on board at the time, and three cadets, we hired a, we hired a minibus in, in Auckland. We set off into for spend a weekend in New Zealand countryside. Oh, no. We ran the Coromandel Peninsula, a place like that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the third mate asked the cook if he could supply any supplies with any food. So, cooks said, oh, what's the me? And he, he gave us a load of steak, which broke every rule in the book in New Zealand. Because of British agriculture, because if they get foot of mouth over there, they're dead. Yeah. Yeah, well, it would have been them days. Once again, I'm not condoning breaking any local laws or customs here. Shore leave, though, wasn't just a simple case of arriving into dock and immediately deboarding. Even in port, there had to be a certain complement of people on board ship for security and maintenance purposes. So as Gary goes on to say, you ain't always guaranteed to get it, or at least not immediately. 
if you were on duty at the time, you couldn't leave the ship. We would all come off duty, off watch, because what we do, if you're in port, you don't keep watching, well, you keep a watch in the engine room, mm -hmm. and you keep a day aboard man for the, for the bridge, mm -hmm. you know, and also the crew. Um, and you do the deck officers, they take turns, basically, as you which I just someone on board. But you did have to give a watch in the engine room, you did. You know, because they run the generators, if you're running, you're on your own yeah. power. And normally it was just going to the, 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 the junior engineer, mm -hmm. as you were, the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. But you were on day work then. You still had to work. Mm -hmm. You were on day work. So once we'd all finished work, we're all steaming ashore straight to, straight to the most popular bar <laughs> in that port. Mm -hmm. The ship always has top priority, basically. It just meant in practice, though, you might have to wait your turn. In addition, there was a certain amount of admin that needed doing before short leave was granted anyway. Whenever you had to sort of read ports, you had to, your personal details had to be um, registered because so long as you don't jump trip, you yeah. see, that sort of thing. So all the documents had to be verified. So whenever you had port, the person laid on the drinks and all, this, the, shores, all, the, um, all the officials, if you like, from the, from the dock came on board. Plus, of course, these are trade ships, not cruise ships. They go where the money is, not necessarily where there are facilities. This means you'd visit quite a few places that were, shall we say, difficult. And this meant that shore leave itself wasn't always possible, or at least if you could get off the ship, it might only be to a handful of places. It depended very much on the destination. And as you might imagine, some places were more restricted than others. If you went to Russia, China, all those communist countries, yeah, yeah you were restricted. But once you went to Russia... And yeah. uh, I was, I was communist at the time. Yeah. And uh, the way you were saying, could you travel anywhere? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you could. But the only person who was allowed to go anywhere was the captain. Yeah. Because they had a lot of respect, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were there, like, you know. So, and, but basically, sure, there was nothing to do. There was a mission there. Yeah. Big malls of the inner place. And on the wall was five-year plan. So you got ashore in China, didn't you? Yeah, I went to... But you, you still see what? The only letters go to the Siemens mission. Oh yeah, couldn't anywhere else. Go <laughs> you still you can go out the dock gate. But if you're like in a Western country, well, a democratic, yeah. a democratic well, a country like England, basically, yeah. Yeah, you could go anywhere you like. Mm -hmm. We went to South Korea, Busan, mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, that was good. That <laughs> got ashore. Went to the, you know, the, the British Siemens mission. Well, basically, you didn't go to Siemens mission full stop. Because it's too religious, you know, it's too, too, it's like you might as well just stay on board. But we went to the American Army. We went to the, what we done, we went to the American Army forces. And that was really good, that was great. You could get anything in there, a decent, a really good steak meal, you know, clothing, you know, you know jackets, you know, stuff. You know, all, you know, all, it's really good, typical American, you know, where you know, set out, like, yeah. So, uh, and of course, well, of course we come in from China, we was in South Korea. We was right up next to the, uh, the it was a, like a a building by the side of the ship, you know, like a bunk up, yeah, you know, like a block, basically shaped like a block. And on top of that block was a block with a machine gun, yeah, a belted machine gun, yeah. Pointed at us for the whole time. And it was, it, was, it, was, it was focused right on the bridge, just mm -hmm. in case we'd have been infiltrated by the Chinese, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, and you see them with a morning doing this kind of thing, you know, dressed in full military kit, yeah. And well, that's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> and there was a curfew on. Mm -hmm. So you had to be back to the ship by 12 o'clock. Yeah. In fact, the mate, the mate actually on that particular vessel was just, I couldn't get back, that's why I had to stay with this girl. 
I was like, oh yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he did have a beard, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was overweight. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, I had to, you know, I had to stay. I put a pillow down between us. <laughs> oh yeah, of course you did, mate. Because she was obviously on the game. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you, you met a lot, awful lot, of that, awful lot of that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, went on. An awful lot of that sort of thing, which when you're in port, wasn't just restricted to the bars and massage parlours, it seems. As I was saying before, when it was the radio officer, it was alongside, it was all a day work, as it were. When it went, it turned in one evening, because if, if you're alongside, you basically, you didn't go to bed before midnight, mm -hmm. at the earliest, you know. It's better than bougies, you know, bougies, 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 bougies or whatever. Yeah, with a, with a wonderful royal family. Though, yeah. Anyway, so... Because there'd be something going on, you'd be in the bar, like, or you might have thrown a party. You got contacts from ashore, mm -hmm. then the girls on board, yep. probably. Usually on the YWCA, <laughs> things like that. Or you had, or you had girlfriends and yeah, their yeah. friends, and yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, people you met, you met. I mean, you were allowed to bring people on board. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, they did bring in passes. Yeah, yeah. So what the crew did, I don't know more. It was in Liverpool. I don't know more. Like they was having the passes. Like, what they go to find a bullshit to complete strangers. But of course, they're all female. Of course. Yeah. Of unless course. of course you were, you were one of these, you was you were one of these rare people. I mean, presumably yeah. everyone on board the ship at the time was working was male. Presumably. Oh yeah, male. That said, as you might have gathered by now, my mother did join Gary on a couple of his voyages. This was actually more normal than you'd imagine, although of course it had limitations. We well, actually we had. Um, the electrician had his wife on board, you know, because you're allowed to take your wife with you. And he also had, uh, yeah, if you're an officer, I mean, yeah. Yeah, if you're an officer. Although I did sign a month when the bosun took his wife with him, you know. That was, another, that was, that was quite, that was allowed as well. So if, if, it depends on if you've got the lifeboat space yep. to the passengers. If you don't have a lifeboat space, you've got to take them. And of course it goes without saying that you couldn't let it interfere with your working life and time. But I'm sure that sort of thing didn't happen. Much. After hearing all that, you might be wondering, well, does the Merchant Navy still exist? The answer is yes, but... But you've got to remember now that the Merchant Navy's changed a hell of a lot since I was there. In fact, it's one of the reasons I left, mm -hmm. actually. It's not everything's become containerised now. Everything's containers mm -hmm. now. So that's sort of... Whereas those, those particular vessels, they were sort of like side-loading. That's why you had docks. You had the famous... You had the docks in Liverpool and London, whatever, like all the rest of you know, in Europe. They were loaded straight into the old, but now it's all loaded on my... Over a over a crane, yeah. you know, and a container. But those particular vessels was like, was like um, you had winches on board, so you could actually take the cargo out yourself. But it was like it was physically demanding. It was not not, not for me, but um, the actual doing the work itself was physically demanding. That's where the ship type. That's where the uh, dockside cranes, and uh, yeah, dockside cranes, and that's where you had a lot awful lot of work. Because that's why it's so militant as well. Mm -hmm. So it's all going out, going out strike. We're going to do what they like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, in New Zealand, for example, give it, if you were loaded on a Sunday, I said, no, we, we can't load for two hours because we're going to church. That was one of the rules. I went to church, so you've got to start loading on a Sunday yeah. until they were good and ready. So things like that. That was another thing that put, drove a nail in the coffin of uh, those, those particular vessels. Yeah, that's why we went containerisation. Yeah. this. It's, it's costing us too much money and everything else. These days, you're lucky if you get a day in port. Mm -hmm. It's quick turnarounds because it's containerised. It's yeah. very, very rapid. But that's because there were cargo, refrigerated cargo, general cargo ships, those ones. Well, yeah, there was other vessels, well, like bulk carriers, they like carrying grain in bulk, you know, and these big ships, really big, big monster ships, you know, really big, combination, beautiful combinations and stuff like this. But they'll only be alongside for about a day or so. 
you know, that was that would be it. And to be out on the way ports, miles from every anywhere, because mm -hmm. of what they'd be carrying it, could be anything, steel, um, as I say, grain, oil, you know, oil tankers, obviously, super, okay. super tankers, you're miles from anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's a much quicker operation, much more efficient, requiring less admin and less crew to manage a much bigger ship. Gary referred to the containerized vessels as being big monster ships. Wikipedia suggests that the largest container transport ships mostly have a gross tonnage in the 200,000s, so between about 15 and 20 times bigger than the one Gary first served on. They tend to be just shy of 400 metres long and around 60 metres wide. For comparison, this is a very similar size to the largest cruise ships operated by Royal Caribbean International that I'm sure a couple of my listeners will have been on. Uh, there's a reason I've never done an episode about cruise ships, and it's not because I'm ignoring your interests. More importantly, though, from a following in Gary's footsteps viewpoint, note who owns and operates those largest container ships. And I know I'm only speaking here about the largest, but obviously the bigger the ship, the more dominant you are in the industry. So brands like Mediterranean Shipping Company in Switzerland, Maersk in Denmark, CMACGM in France, Evergreen Marine, Taiwan, Ocean Network Express, Japan. Gary mentioned earlier that at the time he worked for them, P&O was the largest in the world. It's now just one of the many subsidiaries of Maersk. These are huge conglomerates headquartered in, well, not the UK. Indeed, the majority of the top 30 companies are based in East or Southeast Asia. The industry has definitely shifted over time. So in a way, while the Merchant Navy still exists, in a sense, it's a very different beast in life to the one my stepdad led. Probably lonelier in a sense, certainly less filled with interesting stories and notable events. As I say, my interview was over two hours long. If you want to hear the full version, I'll upload it to my Patreon. He tells more stories I couldn't fit into this episode, including one time when alcohol was not the only illicit substance brought on board, one night of shore leave where the officers encountered Japanese food for the first time, and a bit about his later times working aboard vessels transporting, of, of all things, nuclear waste. And on that note, one of my earliest memories of Gary being on the ship is when I picked up a reverse charges phone call from Barrow because he'd just arrived and wanted to let us know that he was on his way home. <laughs> Well, that's about all for this episode. Join me next time for something very much more on dry land. Until then, remember, don't mix hyacin or scopolamine with alcohol. And if you're feeling off colour, as you might do on board, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter, and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye.